Hello and welcome to TF Extra. The cheese between the bagel, the hinge at the side of the door, the thorn on the roses and the bookmark between the pages. Or more importantly, the lesser of the Talking Flutes podcasts hosted by Claire Southworth. My name is Jean-Paul Wright and welcome to Talking Flutes Extra. So you probably noticed that we've changed the opening theme for the Talking Flutes Extra podcast today. As so many of you have asked following the interview with William Dowdle a couple of weeks ago to hear more of his beautiful music. So that stunning intro track was entitled Eleanor Plunkett by Carolan, arranged by John Buckley. So before we go too deep into this podcast, I'd like us to indulge a little bit more in this beautiful music from Ireland, as the piece you really wanted to hear from Bill's album was Danny Boy, arranged by John Buckley, played by Bill on his wooden Chris Abel flute. Let's take a few minutes to just close our eyes and get transported to Ireland.
I'm sure you'll agree that that was beautiful. All the music you hear today can be found on the album entitled Irish Melodies by William Dowdle, the Irish fluter on the Celestial Harmonies label. In a moment, I'll be speaking with David Farley, the technical director of Trevor James Flutes, about what he does and how he is so passionate about the instrument and also meeting you guys, the flute players. But before I speak with David, Claire Southworth from Talking Flutes has reminded me this morning to say a big thank you for all the questions that you've sent in and just to let you know that she'll be covering some of them in later Talking Flute podcasts. But in short, keep them coming. You can do so via either email at flutepodcasts, that's plural, podcasts, at gmail.com or via many TJ social media channels. Details and links of these can be found on the Global Flute website, trevorjamesflutes.com, under the social media box on the homepage. A bit more housekeeping on my part, in that I've received an email from David Lewis, who lives in Pretoria, South Africa. And David asks, when each week does the podcast go live? Well, David, the Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra podcasts go live at 0600 UK time each and every Monday morning from our specialist podcast site, Podbean. And then it usually takes an hour or so, depending on when the feed is picked up by the other providers, such as iTunes, etc. Should you want to get it first thing on the Monday morning, then best way is to subscribe either via the Podbean app for your mobile device or online at flute.podbean.com. And don't forget to subscribe if you want first dibs on our dedicated podcast channels. Now, any of you who have visited us here at the Trevor James Flute Headquarters in Lenham we know that we have an upstairs and a downstairs. The upstairs, where the important people like me sit, and the downstairs, you can hear him laughing already. The downstairs, where the not-so-important people reside. David, what's it like coming upstairs? It's very interesting. I've not, not been this far north for a while. <laughs> and welcome to David Farley. He's our technical director. Now, of course, I joke, and people will know that I have a, a healthy regard for our technical department because, let's face it, without them, we wouldn't be who we are. But in discussing technical things with our technical department, such is their passion and not mine, I tend to fall asleep when they're going into the 30th and 31st minute of talking about a new flute screw. Oh, that's a good well, You managed to warn everybody in advance, John Paul. That's very good. <laughs> So I, I welcome David, our technical manager, upstairs. David, Thank good morning. Yes, good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. Nice to speak to everyone. Well, it's my pleasure. I know what you do, mm-hmm. but, and I, and I do joke, by the way, everybody, David is, plays a crucial and critical factor. He is the key, the linchpin of all our products. He does the research and development and is the main reason why, why we are successful, well, because his designs and his hard work are out there. Goodness me, at this rate, you should allow me up here a bit more often. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just being nice for the the moment. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, as I said, I know what you do. Can you let me know what your job as technical director of Trevor James Flutes on a daily and weekly basis is? Of of course I can. Well, just to let you know, I I sort of started here pretty close to when you did, I think, about 26 years ago now. Mm. And I started off workshop-based because it was something that I felt very strongly about. I, as a flute teacher at the time, I wanted to learn more about the instrument. 
And I thought, well, what better place to do it than uh, really workshop-based? And I've loved it ever since. So having become a workshop manager then uh, for some years and now workshop director, they can't get rid of me, unfortunately. So I'm very much in the workshop hands-on all the time. <laughs> oh, I'm yawning already. I can't, I can't bear the, the thought of not having screwdrivers and things in my hands all day, all day long. So what we, what we do on a daily basis is I look after the production. So mm -hmm. I'm meeting orders, uh, that sort of thing. I'm looking at obviously all the staffing we have downstairs as well. And then I do, I'm still very hands-on with all the signature custom built work. Look, that's the saxophone side and the, the flute side and also the Andy Shepherd autograph series side. So I look after a lot of that. I do um, quite a lot of training. I'm always there to answer questions for everybody, all the technicians in the workshop. And uh, yeah, from a research and development point of view, that's a, a wide and varied thing, really. I mean, what we're trying to do is to produce very good flutes and very good saxophones that are the really what our current players should have, really. Um, so first and foremost, I suppose, it's research and development is really feedback from the players. You know, what do the players actually want? It's not a, you know, for us, it's not a matter of walk, them walking into a shop and sort of showing, being shown a few things. We, I want to know what it is they need out of, out of us as manufacturers. So that's my first, you know, my first port of call. Then sometimes you can see a need for a change as well. Something could be improved, then that could be improved to make it easier to produce or quicker to produce or make it more reliable or better. Um, and generally then to improve performance too. So all of these things matter. And of course, we're constantly looking at pushing the boundaries and trying our best to get them better and better. So they go through various incarnations, and which will start with myself and then John Paul. Uh, and then if we feel it's, uh, it's worthy of sending on to somebody else, players that we know, then we'll do that. And then we'll have them field tested. Uh, for some time at this point John Paul's asleep already I can see him. Um, no no I'm, I'm just awake <laughs> just awake no you're known as like as liking to mess around you don't take things no. you don't like the status quo so you've messed around and I you continue to mess yeah. around with plating yeah. you mess around with designs cuts yeah, yeah. I, th I think things things have not reached a, a zenith of perfection yet uh, anywhere and I think there's always new things to discover and better things to do for the player. Yeah I totally get that so tell me about head joint development David because I know there's always a, there's the holy grail it is where the sound emanates from it is the engine of every flute and we for years that's at Trevor James Flutes have been trying to find a head joint design that is consistent in every cut and that gives the player what it wants. But however, the styles around the world change and are constantly evolving. However, I know for the past 18 months, you've been working on this brand new head joint, which we are launching in the coming months called the Voce head joint, which is going on the Cantabile and Virtuoso models. Can you explain how you got to that one design? Well, yes I, I, yes, I can. I think we've had plenty of experience here over the years in learning what we're looking to try and achieve with a flute head joint, i.e. we're looking for the power, the balance, the certain amount of resistance. Um, and over the course of that time, we've, we've cut plenty of different designs. Um, and yes, they've, they've, they've been in the, in, the, in the main very good. This particular one we've looked at, we've looked at more important aspects uh, we've looked at uh, lip plates as well we've looked at all manner of things and we've come up with um, a design which seems to be ticking the boxes for many players that's all i can say 
you designed it as a one-piece lip primerizer rather than two separate pieces, which is very unusual in a step-up model, because normally a one-piece casting, you normally only find on professional. How are you finding the response from the players when they've been testing them or testing the prototypes? Yeah, we've had really good feedback. I mean, we're using a heavier riser um, um, to, to help to uh, focus their sound a little more. Um, I, I've, been, I've been really pleased with the feedback that we've had about it. Now, it was your crazy idea probably about three or four years ago to start experimenting with crowns. Uh, heavier crowns and lighter crowns. Now, we've had plenty of discussions about this, <laughs> and there is no right or wrong way of anything. But I, I knew, I know that at the time you wanted to put something heavier on the end of the head joint. We put it on and I felt that it did something to the sound. Mm. We went out to players and they said they did, did something for the sound. You, regard, you maintain a sceptical um, <laughs> approach to everything, saying I'm that not, if it works, yeah, it works for the player. I'm, I'm not sceptical. At the end of the day, I just don't know enough scientific evidence really and, and uh, knowledge to be able to do this. All I do know is if something works and a player perceives it to work, then that's an interesting concept to follow. And that's as far as I would go with it. I think there are so many interesting ways and means of, of having that the cavity behind that stopper on the flute um, working harder for the player. And I think it's no, the, you know, people have been experimenting with this for years and years. And I don't have a definitive answer. I do know, though, when I see a player's eyes light up and they say, wow, this is working for me. And that's, at the end of the day, what we're all doing it for, really, I think. Well, I've known you long enough to know that you're not set by dogma. You're open to anything. But the most important thing is the player and the musician. And if they are happy, then... Absolutely. I mean, that's the reason we're all here, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I, my, my job really is to give the player, at whatever level that is in the world, the instrument that they can perform on. It's a tool of their trade, or, it, or it's aspiring to be a tool of someone's trade. And I, I treat it as such. And the smile is always the most important. Of course, yes. I think that's the same. It's the same for any, any performer on stage. The applause uh, and the feedback you get from your audience and uh, is all important. It's the, it's the food that keeps us working. So that's very important to me. And unusually for us is that we let David out occasionally. <laughs> Out of his little <laughs> workshop office to meet flute players. Because actually, the only, that's the only way you can learn. Absolutely because I can right. feedback and our team yeah, can definitely, feedback. Definitely. But you understand from a technical perspective what well, the player is asking for. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's very tricky sometimes because uh, it's, it's an inexact science. And of course, anybody who makes flutes, head joints or, or any of these things will appreciate that Things vary from head joint to head joint, from cut to cut, from player to player, and therefore it's a kind of fluid thing. But it's just trying to find that right answer for that one player that's the thing that really sort of drives me, really. you got it in one, so there isn't the perfect holy grail of head joints, no, because we've all got different no, chops. Absolutely. Does that absolutely. frustrate you sometimes? Um, no, I think it keeps it exciting. I keep. I think the whole future for for flute design and saxophone design is is far from cut and dried. I think there's so many things that we can explore scientifically and musically. I think it's a very exciting horizon. Can you? I mean, I know what it is, uh, but one of the questions we yeah, it does help. But one of the questions we've received from um, a listener, uh, Janice Evans in Newport in Wales is what is a donut? Now, I don't mean Krispy Kremes here, David. <laughs> Could you explain what a donut is to a technical person yeah, or a flute player? Of course I can. It's uh, sometimes known as an E-ring as well. 
Um, generally, it's fitted to the, sec the top G sharp, which is the sort of second of a pair of G keys in the middle of the flute, to restrict the venting so that to stabilise E3. Usually, they're put inside the tone hole on flutes that don't have E mechanisms, and it's just enough of a constriction of venting to stabilise the note. Are you still awake? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, you lost me after the first <laughs> after the first couple of sentences. Well, um, now that obviously leads us on quite interestingly to some, hmm. and I must admit it, it didn't yeah. it, it didn't it, you know where it's going here? It didn't float my <laughs> boat when you brought this new project up to me. Yeah, um, open G sharp. Open G sharp. Right. Yeah, it, yeah. As the story goes, he's been working on something for quite a while now, and. It's to take us back quite a long way to an open G sharp. Now he's David. Oh. I'm, I'm calling you he here. I apologise. David and Claire Southworth, the professor of flutes at Royal mm. Academy, has got mm. a bit of a thing going about open G sharp mechanism. Yes, most definitely. And being able to make an affordable one. Yeah, definitely. Now you came up two weeks ago with an open G sharp mm -hmm. prototype, yep. Trevor James flute. Uh, I put it up on social media, just thinking everybody to fall asleep, and the it, my our channels burnt down with interest. Can you just let tell our viewers what the Open G Sharp yeah, is yeah. and what it does? Well, first and foremost, I think we've spent a long, long time, decades now, exploring flutes of the same design, the closed G Sharp bone system. It's it's the only the only thing. Uh, that's around these days. We've experimented with materials, with cuts, with head joints, with all sorts of things. But what we haven't done, perhaps, is to look back at the scientific reasons that this flute was developed in the first place. And I think back in the 1840s, I'm not quite sure when, but I think Boehm's original um, number one was actually an open G-sharp flute. And it was changed to closed G-sharp over a period of sort of 20 or 30 years or so in, um, in, the, in the late 1800s, purely because of the, uh, the closed G-sharps that, that had been around on the, on the wooden um, simple system for three years. And it was just really a pragmatic thing to make the G-sharp closed. But in doing that... Of course, it's created all sorts of problems in the middle of the flute, which has resulted in the need for two G-sharp holes, E-mechanisms and all sorts of things. But what I wanted to try to do is to actually start looking backwards to, uh, to much cleverer people than us uh, years and years ago who were coming up with what they termed at the time as scientific flute. And I think there's a lot of mileage in getting the flute uh, with an open G-sharp which means that there's no need for an E-mechanism because the, the, the uh, tone holes close in a sequential manner. Uh, there are simple, nice, simple designs, stronger, and I think the intonation and the response on the flute is really worthy of looking at. Looking at. I know Claire's a big uh, fan of Open G-sharp, as are a number of people throughout the world, but the frustration seems to be that nobody out there makes them at a price that people can actually try and, 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 see, and see what they think. So I think it's very important for us to look back to our, our roots in the 1850s over here and, and flute makers all over the world to actually look more carefully at this open G-sharp flute and to get people um, seeing what the benefits are. Can you explain, when you're putting your left hand down, the fingers, in, you, say, you talk about it being sequential, mm -hmm. Can you explain, you obviously got the B, first yep, finger B, first finger second B. finger A, yep. then, then what happens? Well, with the, G, with the G normally, it would be the third finger, um, but with what we're talking about here is actually having all of the 
the, the, the G would be a G sharp, and then the G sharp would make would create the G. So we're going down one finger at a time down the flute. Now, the, the benefit of doing this system, really, is that you can actually create a, a very good scale, and by that I mean intonation on the flute itself. There's one tone hole. It can be controlled in its position, its height, um, to give better tuning. And um, the whole thing is basically one... You go down a semitone each time a finger goes down onto a key, basically. It makes a lot of sense, but it mashes the brain when you try and play it. Well, it does, because we're all used to this kind of strange system um, with the closed hole, really, these days. Um, along with this kind of open G-sharp, back then there was also this need to try and find um, the unveiled notes. In other words, not having a tone hole closed below another one that's open. And by that I mean a long B-flat fingering, for example, Nowadays, you can actually have a, um, a Brichialdi B-flat touch piece and you don't need to close a, a tone hole below it. Uh, F-sharp, for example, is keyed from right-hand third yeah. finger, the D key, as it, mm -hmm. we would call it, and therefore it's closed below an open one. So it was a very important factor back then that the actual flute was scientific and the scale was worked out scientifically. And I think, you know, I, I personally have... Um, several 1867 patent brutal carts and anyone who knows these are combined cart and simple system systems and they are just fantastic pieces of kit the tuning on them is unbelievably good um, and i think that we could we would do well to spend some time looking backwards rather than just plowing forwards with them i think it's worthwhile looking at the top of the flute you won't notice there's any difference but when no. you look at the underside there's actually no g-sharp tone that's hole. right well the the, the G-sharp tone hole at the back of the flute is, is no longer required because the, there's, there's two G-sharp tone holes. So there's, there's one at the back and then there's one on the top of the flute as well. And, of course, the open G-sharp just uses that one. Now, Brossa F-sharp, I know that's not a passion of yours. <laughs> well, the, I think the whole idea of this unveiled notes, really, is something that I'm working on quite, uh, quite hard at the moment. I'm trying to find a way of producing a flute where we don't need to... We can just still use the right-hand third finger to play the F-sharp, but directly to the F-sharp itself, rather than pressing the D key down as well. That will improve the venting of, of the right hand, and it gives a direct contact to the F-sharp, which can be unstable with regulation and wear and tear and that sort of thing. So I think that's another valuable thing to be looking at at the moment as well. Yeah, I've never played on a flute the Brosser F-sharp. Really? No. No, no, well. It's, if, you, if you're playing a, a B-flat on a, on a standard flute, you've got the Brichialdi mm -hmm. B-flat, the trill key, you can actually get the direct B-flat. It's very stable and it's very reliable, and it's a similar principle to the F-sharp, to so, have something similar to the F-sharp. So why don't flute companies put these on a standard? I've no idea. I don't really know. I think they kind of maybe they became more technically difficult to make, and uh, but this is what I'm saying. I think that there's so much we can improve on the flute by actually looking backwards to some heritage, and that's not just heritage in this country; it's in Europe and America, and all sorts of places where we can learn from our, our, our forebears. And I know it's important to you that all the developments that you and your team put in are made available to everybody, not just those that have a deep pocket. I think so too, yeah. Certainly the Open G-sharp, I think, is, is a flute that is much underestimated. and uh, It's one of those things which are only made to order, so they tend to be uh, handmade flute options. And what we need is for teachers who are 
um, convinced by the open G-sharp principle to be able to teach the open G-sharp principle. So, uh, you know, it, it would be something to be able to produce an expensive instrument, a bespoke instrument for anybody, but more importantly, it's actually making it available to everybody at whatever level they are. So that, that, that's my primary goal at the moment, is to create a, something at entry level which is open G-sharp. And as I said, when we started the conversation, when you brought this piece of tube up to me and <laughs> you placed it down and I played it and my G-sharp little finger didn't produce G-sharp, it actually produced a G, um, I thought that this would be another one of your crazy ideas that would hit the road and then would just sort of yes, you, put it down to experience. <laughs> but it seems to have gone rather mad. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. I, I, it it's no secret that the open G-sharp flute is a very good design. Um, it is scientifically closer to the flutes of the middle 19th century, really, when they were looking at scientific answers to, to these things more carefully than perhaps we are nowadays. And I think it's, a really, it's, a, it's nice to be able to tip one's hat to people um, some years ago who, who really had something. And I think once you realise that it isn't that difficult to play, I think the stability, the response, um, well, it, it, it goes without saying, really. Right. I have some uh, questions from oh, listeners okay. on the very quick ones. Uh -huh. Care and maintenance. Oh, dear, right? Yeah, I know. And I know and I appreciate that lots of repairers have their own thoughts and their own views. Mm -hmm. um, but you get quite a few flutes that... Uh, of many brands that come in here for overhaul and repair. Yeah. So, firstly, how often should a, do you think a player should get their flute serviced or overhauled? Well, really, servicing is a preventative thing in my book. Uh, it's something that should be done to prevent it failing on you, really. Um, so I think having it looked at annually, um, whether that be a full service or a kind of regulation or... An inspection is important. It's important for you as a player more than anything else. Um, whether it's m more often or more involved is really how well you look after your flute, to be honest. Um, if, you're, if you're swabbing the, the thing out and taking the, the moisture out, you're not applying oil all over the place. Well, that's another question, David. Uh, okay. That is another question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, generally, and it, I, I, the question is... I would say about one, maybe once a year to have a look at it um, and servicing maybe once every year and a half, something like that. Right, this question came in on oiling and it did make me smile, <laughs> which was, why, why can't the flute player, or why shouldn't the flute player, oil their own flutes with car oil? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you, you can do what you like, it's your flute, but uh, if you want it to work and carry on working, I suggest you don't. Um, the principle is that the oil needs to be inside the mechanism, not on the mechanism, over the mechanism. It needs to be inside the mechanism. So really it lends itself to being done during servicing or inspection. Um, the oil on pads, oil on um, adjusting screws, oil on adjusting leather pads absolute nightmare for us all and um, it should just don't do it just don't do it you use special oil anyway don't you not we the do oil we use oil. various yeah various grades of viscosities of oil shall we say and um, all, all of which these days is synthetic in order to make sure that it can cope with various temperatures but the long and short of it is unless somebody who you trust as a technician um, shows you how to do it properly i would i would take it to somebody else because you can do a lot of damage to pads Okay, and another question is wet pads, soggy pads. Mm. You know, when you're playing away and you get that, <laughs> you know, the bubble appearing, the yeah, water bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
is, and I know, I know quite a few people that use these cigarette papers, and I know a lot of repairers are anti-cigarette papers because of the potential to split the skin of the pad. Yeah. So what's your views on how to keep the moisture out as much as possible? Well, really, it, the, the moisture depends on the temperature of the flute and the person and all sorts of things. So some people have, create more water, shall we say, than other people do. Uh, it depends on how cold the flute is to start with. So warming the flute up to start with is obviously something useful, something good. Um, after playing, shall we say, it's very important that we remove all of the moisture from the inside of the flute because we don't want it sitting in a case where it's trapped. Um, and that involves kind of, you know, um, uh, synthetic kind of brushes inside as well where it can trap the moisture. Remove the moisture with a gauze-free cloth, and prefer preferably a wooden cleaning rod, uh, which can't scratch the inside, and make sure it's as, 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 as dry as possible. If, you've got, if you're getting problems during the course, uh, then it's like mopping up a spill, really. If you've, got, if you've got a big spill on the floor, then putting a couple of pieces of, you know, of small amounts of tissue on it is not going to do a lot of good. So if you've got a lot of moisture under pads, then I would use uh, one of the um, microfiber-type um, um, uh, patches that you can buy and just put it under the pad and just press the pad gently, absorb the majority of the water with that and then once you've done that then use your cigarette paper because otherwise the cigarette paper just gets completely soggy and breaks up sticks to the inside of the pad uh, and there we are i know one thing that makes you your blood boil is when you see people using cigarette paper closing the key down and then pulling the cigarette yeah. paper out whilst the key's still yeah. closed yeah exactly again it, it doesn't speed things up it just makes things worse in many ways and it also breaks the pads it can break the, the pad skin uh, which is also an expensive repair after that um, so no don't pull the, the, the just literally just close the key on the paper allow the moisture to you can see you can open it again see how much moisture is on the paper and keep doing it with different pieces of bits of cigarette paper until such time as the ring disappears but don't pull it out when the key's shut because you're just going to break the pad skin and another big no-no is don't take a screwdriver to any screws that you find on the flute no no that's absolutely, absolutely <laughs> yes i mean i think we've all of us in the past have had screwdriver sets given to us as, as because we were learning to play the flute by auntie mabel and her various grandparents and i think that yes they should be treated with a great deal of care uh, if you've got something that's falling coming out a screw that's come backing out somewhere take it to somebody who knows what they're doing don't try and do anything yourself unless someone's shown you the, the, the basics. Really. Is that because not necessarily the screws uh, are isolated in one area? Some screws uh, lead to actions in other areas yeah, of the flute. Yeah, they're, they're all there for a reason. Yeah, they're all there. They either hold the mechanism to the flute or they adjust it, one or the other. And, uh, and as such, both, both jobs are very important. Right, David, before you disappear back down the stairs, yes, your little my, Willy my Wonka tire factory. My hamster cage, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can imagine you're on, this, on that wheel, on the hamster wheel going around <laughs> in a circle. I've got to oil that. It reminded me, yes. Now, I know you'd have lots of advice, but can mm. you think of one piece of advice that you could give a flute player? I would say it's all to do with handling, really. Um, always be aware that the flute is a very delicate piece of kit. Um, Picking the instrument out of the case by the middle of the instrument, where the G keys are, as we were talking about those earlier, not a good idea. Um, eventually, something's going to stop working at that point. So always pick the flute up out of the case by the ends of each part. 
always put them together by holding the barrel and the part of the head joint, for example, which isn't we don't blow into. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, and always and the probably the over the years the most out of regulation thing on a flute is probably the foot joint, and most foot joints you buy them they're in regulation. In other words, they play low C by pressing the roller. Over a period of weeks, they can lose that adjustment purely down to the way they're handled. So when you pick up the foot joint of the flute, pick it up and put your thumb on top of the key cup for the second one up from the bottom of the flute. Mm-hmm. And then put the, flute, the, 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 the foot joint on. Don't put your thumb on the pieces that your little finger is going to sit on. And so um, because then it will stay in regulation and you can't do any harm. Uh, and I think that uh, that's probably handling is probably the most important, closely followed by mopping it all out afterwards and being um, and being mindful of the fact that you're not wanting to trap moisture inside the flute or the case. David, thank you for coming upstairs. No, you're welcome. And it's um, I do do you a disservice and your team downstairs <laughs> because and I, in fact, I in my jest, I do all repairers and designers and engineers a disservice by pretending to fall asleep but i think it's probably just down to raw jealousy that oh, um, well, you, you know more about the yeah. tubes than uh well, than I, I, do. I, I think i think we 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 have to do that we have to know more and more and of course i don't purport to know um everything there is to know by a long by any means but i'm constantly learning um constantly trying constantly pushing the boundaries and uh and it's all for you guys really it's all to make you the player um you know, a, a better, better player and give you a more reliable instrument. David Farley, Yoda, <laughs> the technical director of TJ Flutes. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Nice to speak to you. Whilst I'm the first to admit to not being very techie, what David and his flute team do, I can only admire. In fact, I admire all techies, those that can dedicate their time and their lives to the finer point of manufacture, fixing, repairing, and basically getting the flutes back on the road when we have problems. Next week on Talking Flutes, Claire will be speaking to an ex-student of hers at the Royal Academy of Music in London, Yao Yao Lu, about going from the academy straight into an orchestral job, which will be a very interesting podcast indeed. So we exit this week's Talking Flutes Extra with a snippet of the Mason's Apron, arranged by John Buckley again. The last track from the Irish Melodies CD by William Dowdle. Thank you once again for joining me in Talking Flutes Extra. Wishing you a great fluty week and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Goodbye. TF Extra is a podcast production for Trevor James Flutes. More details can be found at trevorjamesflutes.com.